0: Good morning again. Good morning. So, a couple of things. Do you remember? It was probably sometime in February. I had been here a few weeks, and at one point I stood here and I looked out at everybody and I said, I don't care who you voted for. I don't even care if you voted. I don't want to argue anymore about candidates and elections. I am just focused on what it is we can do together that gathers us here. And to work there no matter where it is we come from because we're all here. And I say that this morning as a reminder, as a prelude to what will follow because that's still true. Second thing I would like to point out, um, we don't have children here this morning other than those of us who are young at heart, which is all of us that are young at heart. And I would like to ask that you look at the front of your bulletin for just a second. And the inset of the map there with some of the um, explanations, definitions perhaps of terms or people that are used in this morning's gospel. Think of that map in terms of when it was that Jesus walked on this earth. And you will see that most of the people and things that are listed there, all of them actually, are from ancient times. With that in mind, let's bring it into the present and look at that map as if that little city on the water there in some way were Saville, And this is our little community because we know that Jesus did not veer far from where he was born. So let's bring the world in for a moment to this community and to our role in this community, our lives here, in terms of how they may touch others. So when I think of the question, who do you say I am? When Jesus said, who do you say I am? And I've, I've been asked the question whenever I offer that to others, they say, well, who do you say you are? And who do you think Jesus is? And in Sean's song, thank you, Sean, in Sean's singing of you'll never walk alone this morning, I think of Jesus as the one who walks with me. Never alone, with me in the ways that I understand how that is. So I invite you to do the same, to let the answer to that question in part be, who is Jesus? Let it in part be this morning and going forward, it is he who in some way walks with me. And so these comments. If Jesus were around to ask that question today, He sure would get some interesting answers, especially following this last week, 10 days. Who do you say I am seems to be at the heart of this tectonic shift in our politics, a shift that has touched our lives in almost every aspect of who we say we are. A portion of the answer to that question has got to be the ability on our part to be rigorously honest about ourselves and those who have come before and where it is we wish to be going forward. As my friend Jim Rigby says, it is important to realize that racism Racism developed in white, European, and American cultures not as a personal dislike of people of color but as a way of rationalizing colonization, enslavement, and exploitation of places like Africa, India, and the Americas. If we try to be personally friendly within the remaining cultural structures of unequal wealth and power, we should not be surprised, says Jim, that we have not removed the roots of the problem. It is economic and political parity, not politeness, that will measure our progress in facing America's original sin. Of racism. It is why in the midst of our arguments and our disagreements and even our agreements about many things, why in our movement forward as a nation over our short history, why when we see ourselves overtly turned back in the direction of that guilt perhaps and the efforts good people continue to make to create a new future, that we react with such energy and even outrage. Many people, I was taught this growing up, many people believe that America, the United States of America is by definition benevolent. If imperfect, nonetheless benevolent, moving toward a better future for humankind Sort of as a, a composition of all of our lives together with our good points, our struggles, our ideals, and our goals. That as a nation, in some way, we do that moving forward in our communities of faith and other areas from which we gain strength. And central to that benevolence, central to that benevolence, is this concept of fairness, if you've ever taught in a classroom, the one thing that is most important to the kids is that you are fair. That's not fair, Mr. B. So-and-so and you and me, that's not fair. Fairness for kids, for us, is at the core of respect and trust and a willingness to reach beyond the comfortable for fairness. And greater than that is the knowledge that we aspire to that together. That fairness and parity, accountability, and the benevolent perception we hold of ourselves as Christians, as people of faith, has been sorely tested again this week. Again in our history and our herstory. The broad population of our nation, as watched by the world, has found itself face to face with the unwinding of fairness that has become so overtly vulgar that the notion that those who oppose it are in equivalency range with those who espouse it, that uninformed and careless notion of who we are, has whipsawed us in outrage, in action. IN CONFUSION, IN DISBELIEF, IN SHOCK, AND EVEN AWE. THE QUESTION, THE QUESTION IS DO WE HAVE TO PLACE OUR HANDS ON THE DOORS OF THE OVENS AT Auschwitz TO REMEMBER THAT WE LEARNED THAT LESSON, WE LEARNED THAT LESSON. It is dangerous and malevolent, not benevolent, at any time to think that fine people march for hatred and the lifting up of our nation's historical inhumane practices as something to which one should aspire as a remedy for the present is wrong. Do we have to go back to the lynchings of 1900s as an example? To remember that, in fact, the murder of Heather Hare was fueled by the same hatred, the same guilt, shame, anger, and selfishness that tied the nooses around those who were lynched, a symbol that is still used today by hate groups, along with the Nazi swastika, the torches, and the hoods, and the Confederate flags. This is not new. But who do we say we are is important because this is now ours to address. Who are we? What do we teach? How informed are we in our faith and our faith-based responses? What do we say to one another? How do we filter out the noise to talk about what is at the core of the problem, the probably we would most likely move away from? How do we bring the Jesus that walks with us each day in our hearts and memory to bear on the same hatred that executed him? So here's what I believe I believe that moral behavior is programmed in us as much as our ability to learn language. I believe that ethical, moral teachings are, there are no equivalent opposites, that moral, ethical teachings are part of who we are. And that there is only abdication of what is by our inaction to be who we are. Not a choice, abdication, moving away from who we are, moving away from God, perhaps, Sin, if we go by the Greek definition of sin as missing the mark moving from God. There is only abdication of what has been given to us as being created out of love. There is no choice in moral authority in my mind. It is. We get into trouble when we try to parse it slice and dice it. And when we do, people are harmed. And our history shows us this. It was on an August day in 1903, the 10th to be exact. In the Chicago Daily Tribune, Teddy Roosevelt sounded a note of alarm, a note of alarm at the increasing tendency toward the punishment by lynching, tied to mob violence stating that this tendency is driving the republic to anarchy, he made no mention that the lynchings were mostly used against African Americans. By the time FDR became our 32nd president in 1933, 30 years later, at a time of the Great Depression, not much had changed regarding lynching And FDR had a dilemma, a moral problem. Or did he? You decide. The South was living in a time of Jim Crow, and these laws were held in place by powerful Southern Democrats that didn't want the change. And FDR needed those powerful Southern Democrats to advance his New Deal agenda. And he believed that any attempt to institute a civil rights agenda an anti-lynching agenda would sink his agenda for the New Deal with the Southern Democrats. And he may have been right. He was equivocating. Anti-lynching, New Deal, New Deal, anti-lynching, equal. Eleanor was not happy with him as we would expect Eleanor to be. In fact, she went at him, and she was outspoken and strident against, anti, against lynching and the need for anti-lynching legislation to the point that the KKK put a $25,000 bounty on her head. According to the National Archives... A blog at the FDR Presidential Library Museum, it says this, the anti-lynching movement was as controversial then as the Black Lives Matter movement is today. Between 1882 and 1968, more than 3,300 African Americans were murdered by lawless white mobs. There were 28 such murders in 1933 alone, the first year of FDR's presidency. The victims were often tortured, beaten, buried alive, and hanged. Almost no one was arrested or convicted of these crimes. It tells one story about George Armwood, that in October of 1933 on Maryland's eastern shore, George Armwood was lynched by a frenzied mob of 3,000 men, women, and children. And if you wonder what frenzied mobs look like, check some of the videotapes of the last week. A frenzied mob of 3,000 men, women, and children who overpowered 50 state troopers and pulled him from prison and took him out and lynched him. The NAACP called on FDR to condemn the act. He said nothing. Then, a short while later, two white men were dragged out of a San Jose jail and lynched on December 7, 1933. And FDR took to the radio. This new generation, this new generation is not content with preachings against that vile form of collective murder, Lynch Law, which has broken out in our midst anew. Really. We know that it is murder and a deliberate and definite disobedient of the commandment thou shalt not kill. We do not excuse those in high places or in low who condone Lynch Law. But Roosevelt would not support an anti-lynching bill. Who was he? He explained later to his biographer, quote, if I come out for the anti-lynching bill now, they will block every bill I ask Congress to pass to keep America from collapsing. I just can't take that risk. Should I go to Jerusalem or not? Hmm. Should I walk down there where I know there's going to be trouble? Or maybe I'll just go back and hang out with my disciples. Anyone who has tried to advance any sort of advocacy or activism has heard these words, come on, it's just not time. We're not ready. Don't upset things. And so again, minorities become the human collateral damage as a nation gets ready. And I have no patience. I know I need to contain it in a way, but I have no patience. White supremacists, celebration of the Confederacy that fought to secure slavery, the KKK, fine people. Fine people. Love them, yes. Stop them, yes. Who do we say we are? Let our actions say who we are, and let's not revive our soul by standing quietly for one second, considering that opposition to and promotion of hate are two sides of the same coin. Ever, ever. There is a poet. Her name is Esther Popel. And following the lynching of George Armwood, she wrote a poem called Flag Salute. And it was republished in the Crisis Magazine in 1940, a magazine that cost 15 cents then. And the publisher's note is this. In these days when armies are marching and there is much talk of loyalty and democracy on all fronts in America, It is being said that the strongest defense of democracy lies in the unity of all groups in the nation and a conviction that each has a stake in the democratic government. That was 1940. The next line says, when it was announced in Washington on October 9th, almost simultaneously that the federal anti-lynching bill had been killed in the Senate, and that African Americans would be segregated and discriminated against in the U.S. armed forces, the crisis received several requests to reprint this poem, the poem that was written after the lynching that occurred in Princess Anne in October of 1933. It's called Flag Salute. Goes like this, I pledge allegiance to the flag. They dragged him naked. Through muddy streets, a feeble-minded black boy. And the charge? Supposed assault upon an aged woman. Of the United States of America. One mile they dragged him, like a sack of meal, a rope around his neck, a bloody ear left dangling by a patriotic hand of Nordic youth, a boy of 17. And to the republic for which it stands, And then they hanged his body to a tree below the the, the window of the county judge whose pleadings for that battered human flesh were stifled by the brutish, raucous howls of men and boys and women and their babes brought out to see the bloody spectacle of the murder in the style of 33. 3,000 strong they were. One nation, indivisible, under God wasn't there yet one nation indivisible, and to make the tale complete, they built a fire. What matters that the stuff they burned was flesh and bone and hair and reeking gasoline? With liberty and justice, they cut the rope in bits and passed them out for souvenirs among the men and the boys. The teeth, no doubt, on golden chains will hang about the favorite necks of sweethearts, wives, and daughters, mother, sister, babies, too for all. We have to remember. We have to remember. From Jesus, to George Armwood, to Heather Hare. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Were you there when they crucified him? And Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? Were you there when they crucified him? I think if we were there in the only way we can, then all of this should cause us to tremble when anything other than love is embraced. There is no moral equivalency between the embrace of hatred and violence or words or actions that lead to such things. There is no moral equivalence between that and freedom and love and fairness and justice. None. Who we are and who we say Jesus is is at the very heart of what we do and who we send out in God's name and ours. There is no moral dilemma, just moral action. Moral action is Christians and those who indeed seek a benevolent world that reflects God's love, no matter what. Amen.